In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, well, we are nearing another November, and that means that if it hasn't already, that the official countdown will begin. Countdown to what? Well, the countdown to the most important election in U.S. history. Or so we've been told, again. For a little bit of historical context, this was also said back in 1860 when America was in the midst of the Civil War. And then again in 1932 as Americans were trudging through the Great Depression. And if those words, the most important election in history sounds familiar even in your lifetime, that's because it was said back in 2016 and again in 2020. And if I was a betting man, and sometimes I am, I would be willing to bet it will probably be said again. Why is that? Why does it seem that all of a sudden over the past decade or so that every single election is a matter of life and death? I never remember this as a child. I never remember my parents stressing about this, talking about this, being glued to their TVs, watching and hanging on every election ballot or poll. Could it be because we have elevated politics to an almost divine level? We don't simply view politicians anymore as makers and keepers of the law but as liberators and deliverers of the gospel. We don't simply view policies and platforms as different opinions on how to govern and serve a nation, but as the very means of salvation. Which means that we simply don't view presidents and governors as elected officials. We have to also view them as saviors. They have become the source of our greatest hopes, the foundation of our strongest strengths, and they hold the key to our deepest peace. And so when your political savior and salvation is threatened by the other side, well, then an election becomes a very real matter of life and death. You probably know that much of the United States, the way that we are formed and operate was and is influenced by ancient Rome. From our organization as a government to our founding documents, even our judicial system. Were you aware that the concept that you are innocent until proven guilty was in fact a Roman idea? What you might not know is that this current view, this current struggle we have with political saviors and salvation, we also got that from the Romans. I want to read you something that was etched in stone back in 9 BC in reference to the birthday of Caesar Augustus. Yes, the same Caesar Augustus who issued a decree that a census should be taken that sent Mary and uh, pregnant Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem. It was written, it was etched in stone, the most divine Caesar, 
whom we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, the common good, fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the beginning of the year. Our lives have been brought to the climax of perfection in being given Augustus, who was sent to us and our descendants as Savior. He has put an end to war and has set all things in order, and having become God, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times, surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him, and therefore the birthday of the God, Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. Literally, the beginning of the gospel. I share that with you because I want you to understand that that is the context in which first century Jews, including Jesus, found themselves in while living under Roman rule. They were surrounded by what could only be described as gross idolatry. Caesar Augustus died about 20 years prior to the events in our text from Matthew 22, but his stepson Tiberius had taken over as Caesar with little else changing. And when it came to this topic of how do you view Caesar, how do you view the Roman government, the two groups that confront Jesus this morning the Pharisees and the Herodians were on different sides of the aisle and were just as deeply divided as the far left and the extreme right is today. The Pharisees, on the one hand, detested the Roman government. Think about how many times the, the, in history the people of Israel lived in exile and were forced to serve under a foreign government. You kind of think they'd be used to it by now. First it was the Egyptians, then the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, and now the Romans. But you see, there was a difference. You see, all of those other previous Old Testament examples of foreign nations, nations persecuting Israel, they all eventually, to one degree or another, let the Israelites go home. But you see, with the Romans, they never left. They got to stay home. But it didn't really feel like that. It felt like they were living in exile in their own home, that they were slaves in their own homeland. And Rome was just as godless and as immoral as all the other foreign nations who ruled over Israel in the past. And because of that, the Pharisees, who were the, the self-proclaimed, self-appointed religious leaders of Israel, did not believe that it was godly and right to serve such a godless government like Caesar and Rome. The Herodians, on the other hand, though they too were Jews, they loved the Roman government. Well, they loved the power that the Roman government gave them, at least. 
You see, as the Roman Empire grew, one of the most genius things that they did was when they would conquer a territory, they would take some sort of local politician or influential leader, and they would prop that person up and give them sort of like a, a puppet regime. You can be in charge of your people in this area, though he really wasn't. And when it came to the area that Jesus lived in, this area of Galilee, where Jesus conducted and carried out most of his earthly ministry, that puppet ruler was a man by the name of Herod. Yep, the, the same Herod who had just beheaded John the Baptist, and the same Herod that Jesus, in 48 hours from this point, will be standing in front of on trial for his life. And as long as the Romans allowed Herod to have some sort of power, even if that power was largely a facade, the Herodians were all in on Caesar. To the point that Herod even built the capital city in Galilee, in his area, and renamed it after Caesar Tiberius. They could not have been more diametrically opposed, the Herodians and the Pharisees. In fact, the only thing these two groups could agree on, the only bipartisan issue between them was that Jesus needed to go. Earlier that same week, Jesus had just crushed the popular vote. Earlier in the week, Jesus had entered into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey as people were throwing down their coats and waving palm branches, saying, Hail, Hosanna to the Son of David. That did not bode well for the religious authority of the Pharisees who had repeatedly failed in their attempts to challenge the religious authority of Jesus. But the popularity of Jesus did not bode well for the Herodians either because, make no mistake, the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that's how kings enter their city. That's how people react when their king enters their city. And if Jesus was the people's king, well, then there was the very real possibility that Herod no longer would be. But how do you get rid of a guy who showed that he has the votes as much as they wanted to just get rid of Jesus, they couldn't just get rid of him, a riot would have ensued and, and would have threatened the power and authority of both groups. No, the only way to get rid of Jesus was to watch him dig his own grave. Get him to say something or, or do something that would so greatly offend people that they would willingly unfollow him and vote him out. And the Herodians and the Pharisees came up with just the question to accomplish that. A trap that in their minds, there was no ex conceivable escape from. After they butter up Jesus a bit by calling him a good, godly, and impartial teacher, they asked him, Jesus, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? You see the genius of the question, right? First of all, you have to understand that the imperial tax, despite being for the Roman Empire, was not paid by all people who lived in the Roman Empire. It was only charged to and paid by foreigners, the non-Roman citizens, the conquered people like the Jews. 
which made it a very controversial and divisive tax. So, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax, well, then he's committing the cardinal Jewish sin of idolatry towards Caesar, supporting Israel's greatest enemy, which no doubt would have forfeited all of the Jewish votes that he had just secured a few days earlier. A good Jew would have never, never openly supported paying such a tax, though they all still had to pay it. It was political suicide for Jesus to say yes, and the Pharisees were hoping that Jesus would just willingly fall on that sword. On the other hand, if Jesus had said no, do not pay the imperial tax. Well, then the Herodians had everything that they needed to bring up charges, Jesus on charges of insubordination to Caesar and insurrection against the Roman government, which wouldn't have just threatened Jesus' popularity. It would have gotten Jesus thrown into jail or worse because that was the cardinal sin against Rome and it was punishable by death. It really was a brilliant question, and one that most certainly would have trapped, well, pretty much anybody but Jesus. Because, you see, Jesus not only heard their question, he also saw their hearts. He knew their motivation and their intentions, and so he said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, like a penny. It's the most common Roman coin, though it was worth more. And Jesus asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. The reply was even more brilliant than the question. He didn't say what either side wanted him to say, and he avoided their trap masterfully. And as Christians, we hear this, and we're grinning ear to ear, and we say, nice! Another win for Jesus! But I wonder if our joy in Jesus' witty reply is only momentary when we realize that we, too, would have actually preferred Jesus to just give one answer or the other because it's so much easier to live that way. If Jesus had just said, yes, give to Caesar, and that was the end of it, well, then you and I could have gone on putting our hope and trust in our government or in a particular party or candidate. We could think that the, the political realm is out of God's realm and that he either doesn't care or he's not going to get involved. We could continue getting so caught up in our elections that we can't even possibly imagine how our country will ever continue if the wrong side is voted in. We could keep our worldly and political lives over here in this little box, living them Monday through Friday, maybe even Monday through Saturday, and keep our spiritual and religious, our, our God lives over here and limit it just to Sunday. And ne'er the two shall meet. Or if Jesus had gone the other way and simply said, no, God is all that matters. Forget Caesar. You'd owe him nothing. Well, then we could forget about the government entirely. And then we could have what we really want deep down as Christians, and that is a theocracy where God is your only direct ruler. 
We, we convince ourselves that we could somehow live in a world where because God is king, you don't need to be concerned with elections or to pray for government leaders. And then we could go around saying things like, not my president, with total immunity. We could even say things like, it doesn't matter who sits at the White House, it only matters who sits on the throne. You see, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, we always want one or the other. It's just easier. It's cleaner. But the Bible is filled with numerous both ands, where God doesn't allow us to exclude one over the other. So God tells us, for example, as Christians, that we are to always speak the truth. Easy enough. Just ask my friends, ask my family. I'm the only one who knows the truth. I'm constantly trying to set everybody straight. Ah, but God goes on and says you must always speak the truth in love. See, it's not enough to just simply smack people upside the head with truth. You have to speak that truth with love, with genuine care and concern for your hearers. Jesus says, do this but not to the degree that you neglect also doing this. And that's hard. So Jesus says, give to Caesar and give to God. Because as Christians, you and I live as citizens in two kingdoms. This time in history was known as the Pax Romana, or the, the Roman peace. You remember that from history class in high school, I'm sure. Some historians say that it was the longest stretch of peace in human history, spanning over 200 years. Roads were being built, travel was expanded and made relatively safe for the first time in history. Trade was increased, especially around the Mediterranean, bringing in new goods and opportunities to people everywhere. Prosperity grew exponentially, not just for Romans, but even for the Jews, and especially for people in positions of authority like well, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And how is it that the Roman government was able to make all of those improvements and impart all of these blessings? Well, it was because, at least in part, because of taxes. Jesus knew that. So did the Pharisees and the Herodians. So Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And here's the application for you and me. No matter who wins this upcoming election, or any election for that matter, whether you vote for them or not, you have been and you will benefit from the current and the upcoming administration. It might be more or less than you currently are, but you will benefit from it. And I know that because this is the very reason why God created government. And because you will benefit from their leadership, from their protection, their administration, from their willingness to uphold the law, Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And that, of course, doesn't just mean to pay your taxes. As we heard the Apostle Paul list in Romans 13, when it comes to your governing authorities, that also means that you give to them your willing submission as ones that God himself have, have, has placed an authority over you. This means that giving them honor and respect as God's representatives here on earth. 
You respect and honor your president and vice president and senators and Congress people, governors and mayors, as if God himself lived at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, or as if God himself had his name on the nameplate of the governor's door up in Sacramento, as if God himself were the one on the Senate floor or making a speech from Thousand Oaks City Hall. You give them honor and respect, not only when you vote for them or approve of their platform, but simply because they hold an office that was established by God. So that when you submit to them and you honor and respect your governing authorities, God sees it, God treats it, God accepts it as though you are submitting to and honoring and respecting him. At the same time, <clears throat> no government that has ever existed has benefited everyone the same, which is why we, even as Christians, can and should expect to have disagreements when it comes to certain candidates. So campaign for your candidate, passionately even, as you decide which particular candidate in this particular race at this particular time for this particular nation will provide the best and most benefits for you and for your neighbor knowing that regardless of who is elected, what God commands you to give to Caesar does not and will not change. On the other hand, as we've already established, the Roman government was far from perfect. In addition to promoting the idolatry of Caesar worship, abortions and infanticide even was commonplace in Rome, to the point that some historians even partly credit it with ultimately the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. They simply ran out of people. They ran out of patriots. They ran out of soldiers. There was a letter even found dating back to the first century from a Roman soldier sent back to his wife, congratulating her on the, the news of their upcoming edition. She was pregnant, and, and he was promising to send her money, and here's what he concluded in the letter with. If it's a boy, I can't wait to meet him. If it's a girl, expose of it. Roman citizens were given a monthly free monthly ration of grain, but that grain largely came from fields and people in Africa who were who were heavily taxed to provide it, meaning that slavery was prevalent throughout the empire. Pedophilia and child trafficking were viewed as perks of being a part of the prevalent and affluent class of society. On top of that, Jesus knew full well what the Roman government would soon do to his apostles and to his church in the very near future that they would be arrested, beaten, and many of them even martyred. Jesus knew that the very next Caesar, Nero, would bind Christians to poles, cover them in tar, and light them on fire to line the city streets of Rome. Jesus knew all of that was coming, and he was vehemently opposed to every last bit of it. And yet, when given the opportunity to say, I don't support this obviously immoral government, and neither should you, he didn't. Instead, he said, give back to Caesar your taxes, your submission, your honor, and your respect. Application, voice your concerns. Fight for those who can't fight 
for themselves, stand up against injustice, and use the proper channels given to you as an American citizen to enact beneficial change, but do it all within the divine framework of giving back to Caesar what God has entrusted to him. And here is why that is so mightily important. Because if you don't think that your government official is worthy of those things, then what you're really saying is, neither is the God who put him in that position. The reason is so important for you to pray for your government officials, because if Christians won't, nobody will. The reason it's so important to give your government officials honor and respect even when you didn't vote for them is because it shows that you trust God when he tells you that no matter who is president, he does remain the king of kings and lord of lords. It's so important because like much of the Christian life, it makes you look different than the world to pray for someone you didn't vote for. It makes you look like you're not from around here, and that's a good thing, because you're not. It makes it look like you have another Savior, that you live in an eternal kingdom, and that's good too, because you do. In a year from now, maybe your newly elected officials will make it easy for you to give all of those things back to Caesar, but chances are at least some of them won't. And it's when they make it difficult to give to them your taxes and your willing submission and your wholehearted honor and respect that the Lord says to you and me, I want you to remember whose image you bear. You see, just like the image of Caesar was imprinted on the Roman denarius, and that image told you everything that you needed to know about that coin, where it could be used, to whom it, would, it belonged. So it is when Jesus says, and give back to God what is God's. And what is God's? Well, aside from the earth and everything in it, as the psalm writer says, what belongs to God is that which he has put his image on. In Colossians chapter 3, St. Paul puts it this way. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Sisters and brothers, through faith in Jesus Christ, you are being renewed in the very image of God, in the image of Jesus Christ himself. Every time those Pharisees and the Herodians looked at the denarius in the future, they would have remembered that day and what Jesus taught them. But God also wanted to make sure that his image was clearly seen and remembered in the world. But instead of putting it on a coin, he put it on you. So that when the world sees you, Jesus says, they will see me. Jesus wants the world to know that you are a citizen of a different kingdom.
kingdom, one in which every need of every person is perfectly met in Christ, a spiritual kingdom where sinful debts are canceled and forgiven and forgiveness is freely given, a divine kingdom where life, real life, full life is experienced and death is defeated, an eternal kingdom where things like division and anger and hurt and loss are things of the past and can no longer affect you, a heavenly kingdom where your entrance fee has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, is this coming November going to be the most important election of your life? Not even close. That election already took place when God elected you to be his very own just as he did for little Randy this morning through water and the word in holy baptism, where he marked you with his image and inscribed on you his triune name in baptism. At the same time, there is an election upcoming nonetheless. So vote. Or don't. Campaign. Or don't. But most certainly, pray. Not necessarily for the outcome, but that regardless of the outcome, the image of the living God might be clearly seen in you today, tomorrow, next November, and forever. In the name of Jesus, amen.